Welcome to Hemispheres. I'm your host, Nikki Kaiser. This evening, we take a look at Northern Ireland, a small area of a northeast corner of an island, surrounded on three sides by another country, and the rest by sea. It's 21 years after the peace agreement in 1998 that brought relief from 30 years of, well, war, known humbly as the Troubles. We hear from a young lawyer in Derry who gives us the temperature reading after a recent shooting of Lyra McKee, a journalist there. We'll hear from a Colorado resident who lives in the area and was a child in the Troubles in the Falls neighborhood of West Belfast. But first, let's welcome our guests, the Honorary Consulate General James Lyons on the phone, who wrote a book representing the Clinton administration in Ireland titled Peace Meets the Streets, On the Ground in Northern Ireland, 1993-2001. to He has a mother from Belfast and a dad from the South and traveled more than 50 times providing seed money for economic development projects to promote peace. In the studio with us is Anthony Macy of Project Children. They continue to bring Catholic and Protestant children together for shared work projects in the United States, such as Habitat for Humanity Builds. So first of all, welcome, gentlemen. James, are you on the line? Yeah, oh, I go by Jim. Thank Jim, you. thanks so much, Jim. I really appreciate you joining us. And Anthony, welcome as well in the studio. Thank you. So we'll have a few tunes as time permits, as an Irish evening would. But welcome, gentlemen. You know, I recently drove around the coasts of Ireland, north and south, enjoying its spectacular beauty. And all seemed quiet, as I expected. Everyone was as friendly as usual and seemed more interested in uh, shooting locations of the Games of Thrones than anything else. <laughs> so that was the big gossip there. And um, only the quiet murals and Peace Wall, of course, spoke of earlier divisions. But um, folks were totally agreed on things like Brexit was a mess and nobody wants a hard border again. And it all seemed quite peaceful. So I was surprised to hear of the tragic shooting of a young journalist in Derry, April 18th, right after I returned. She was behind the street lines during a riot and was shot by a member of the new IRA. All political parties and groups, of course, denounced the accident, but I was left with questions. I, I wanted to hear about the work both of you have done, of course, to promote peace, and we will get to that. But first, listeners might like a bit of a review of what led to the need for these projects. So if, if you can indulge me to give a bit of background first and then we'll hear about your projects, then I'd appreciate it. Before we begin a historical background, let me clarify a few terms. In the discussion, Republicans are liberal, unionists don't want to unite, <laughs> and estates are modest housing projects. Okay, enough of the U U.S. translations. So basically, Republicans or nationalists want to unite the island as one under the Republic of Ireland, which is mostly Catholic. Loyalists or unionists are mostly Protestant ancestors of Scots and English who want to remain part of the U.K. They're in positions of power, of course, in Northern Ireland. So that's a total oversimplification of a very complex situation. Just for further background, 
Ireland will remain in the EU, but if Northern Ireland follows England out of the European Union, then there might have to be a military border checkpoints to maintain trade, for example. For 20 years, people have been freely passing north and south. One can't even tell when you pass over between the different countries, except that the north uses the British pound and the south euros. So uh, we're going to stay clear of the Brexit details for this show, only because it's extremely complicated. And I'll give you a very good source later in the show for that information. Jim, take us to the 12th century, if you might, and highlight some of the last 300 years that led to the Troubles. We'll get to the dairy history specifically in a moment. Well, yes. First of all, thank you for having me. I I appreciate the opportunity to provide whatever I can to your listeners' better understanding of Northern Ireland, which has always been a complex situation. The English were basically invited by Irish tribal chieftains uh, to come to Ireland to help bring order in the 12th century, as you say, late 11th century, 12th century. And they were largely Normans, and they essentially never left. They ended up eventually at war with the various Irish chieftains. They prevailed. Two of the prominent Irish chieftains left, known in Ireland as the Flight of the Urals. And from that point on, with their lands basically vacant or vacated in Northern Ireland, the English uh, undertook to bring in people from Scotland and England, known as the Ulster Plantation, to provide loyal subjects in what was then the north of Ireland, the ancient province of Ulster, which is nine counties as opposed to the six counties, which are now part of Northern Ireland and have been since 1921. The fight for the Irish or for the English throne, I should say, in the 17th century took place in Ireland. It's known as the Battle of the Boyne. It was a battle between William of Orange, a Dutchman, against his son-in-law, actually, James of Scotland, who was a Catholic. William of Orange was a Protestant, and he prevailed. And it gave rise to what's known as the Orange Order, uh, which is the Protestant uh, organization, basically a uh, ongoing fraternal organization in Northern Ireland. And I think the troubles can be can be traced back at least that far. The modern troubles began in 1972 with what's called Bloody Sunday, when British paratroopers opened fire on a civil rights protesting group in Derry, killed 13 unarmed civilians, and ignited the then relatively dormant IRA or Irish Republican Army, and that led to the so-called modern troubles, which lasted uh, up until basically 1998, when the Good Friday Agreement was finally put in place to bring about some degree of political and social stability in uh, Northern Ireland. Yes, and I understand that the Brits were, the Brits were even welcomed at first by Catholics just to stop the violence, but then... Well, the British Army was, uh, but later became suspect as being complicit with the, uh, basically the police force then known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary and the Protestant majority, as it was then, to institute what essentially turned out to be the functional equivalent of what the Catholics saw as martial law. 
Yeah. And the IRA was outlawed, so that just made it go underground. And I understand that many groups took it upon themselves to police things because the police didn't seem able to do that. So it quickly gets very complicated with um, both internal fighting as well as extremists and so forth. And we'll get to some of the more moderate voices in a minute. But uh, so... Well, what were the conditions in the mid-1800s? You know, we hear of barefoot Catholic linen workers, and it's so contrasted with enormous Anglo mansions. Can you fill us in a little bit about how things got pretty extreme before the Troubles broke out? Well, in the 18th century, actually even earlier than that, it was a, at least in the eyes of the indigenous Irish, who were largely Catholic, but not entirely, uh, it was seen as the importation of a ruling class that was a minority and did not reflect the best interests of the uh, Irish people as a whole and ruled uh, basically with a pretty iron fist. And the resentments that began then and continue over centuries uh, can trace their roots, I think, to some extent, to the plantation. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. We actually happen to have on the line Brian McGinnis, um, who's from the greater Denver area. Welcome, Brian, to the conversation. Hello. Thank you. Yes, thanks so much for, for calling in. I really appreciate it. You're quite a sport of course. On, on this evening that's very Irish-ish with all of this cold, cold uh, rain. So, yes, it is. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how your life turned around for the better, but it was at a tragic point in your personal life when yeah. you, you lost your brother. He was killed. Could you tell us a little bit about that and describe what it was like Growing up in the Lower Falls for you and your family, um, of and and let me explain that. By the way, the Lower Falls Road, actually, the word from Irish literally means territory of the enclosures to signify the boundary of a poor Catholic neighborhood in Belfast. So let's do that, and then later we'll ask you a bit about the whole project that you were involved with meant to you as a child. But first, let's set the tone there um, back in the Lower Falls. Of course. So I grew up in Devis Flats. Um, it was mm. a, a pretty bad slum. It was actually described as one of the worst slums in Europe. Um, we were very poor. Uh, obviously, there was the war going on, so there was bombings every other day and shootings almost every day. Um, in 1996, I had witnessed my nine-year-old stepsister. She was shot dead. Uh, and then also in 2004, my brother was also shot dead, uh, related to the Troubles. Right, so uh, things didn't really change uh, with the peace agreement right away in 98, it sounds like. No, it did not change right away. Um, for for most people it did, uh, but there was still some internal politics that was not resolved, apparently. And uh, it did drag on a little bit. As you can still see today, it's still, it's still happening a little, a little over there. Yeah, it's rather... Well, heartbreaking after so many people put yes, in a lot of effort to make sure. And it, things are improving, but there's, there's yeah. always a bad apple in every bushel, as they say. And, and of course. <laughs> You're always going to have people wanting to cling to par. Right. 
I hope you stay with us as and you can add into the conversation. I want to bring in Anthony. Welcome to the studio. What did you hear about the 30 years during the Troubles from the children that you brought to the U.S. for a break from the violence? Thank you for having me, Nikki. When I was bringing over the young children way back in the early uh, 2000, late 1990s, the children were 10 to 11 years old, so they were literally growing up right in the, the time of the Troubles. The children were coming out literally for six weeks of uh, a break of very heavy violence in Ported Down, Lurgan, Belfast. So their their sense of recognition of what it was like to come to America was transformative. They were used to living in sectarian neighborhoods where there were Catholic neighborhoods, Protestant neighborhoods, Catholic schools, Protestant schools. There was no mixing of the Protestant and the Catholic children. So for many of them, when they came to America, one of the shock points for them was that we were living in neighborhoods without those divisions. The children um, would go back telling their parents what their experience was. And one of the amazing facts about the project that I've been a part of for almost 25 years is that they never were able to confirm almost any child picking up the violence, uh, the sectarianism um, that their parents were growing up under. And we have so many amazing stories of what these children would tell us later on, because I stayed friends with many of them uh, to this day, that are now parents themselves of children in their own uh, world, what it meant to them. Yeah, yeah. I'm eager to get at, you know, what you think worked and, and to look for to the future on this, too. I definitely don't want this to be show all about gloom and doom, but that that's helpful for us to set the stage. I mean, really, visually, I, I can't imagine it. I only think of something like downtown Beirut or other places that saw that much level of destruction of the, of the city centers in some certain neighborhoods. Well, Jim, fill us in a little bit about those neighborhoods in Belfast. Give us an idea of just how much of a civil war it was with physical barriers and so forth between the areas. Well, as Brian described, and Dennis Flats, I think you're right, Brian, was one of the worst of the worst. Um, we're segregated neighborhoods by peace walls, peace barriers, concrete in many cases with concertina wire to divide literally in some cases right down the middle of the street, uh, one neighborhood from another. Uh, when I first started going to Belfast in 1990, early 1993, as part of the Clinton administration, our first one of our first uh, approaches was to see if we couldn't bring people in those neighborhoods to some sort of common ground. Uh, and we used the International Fund for Ireland, of which the United States was the principal contributor and I was the U.S. representative to that fund to try and do that, to create as best we could economic opportunity in those neighborhoods like the Falls and its uh, loyalist counterpart, the Schenkel, um, and begin at least in, in West Belfast to try and find places where the good people in both communities uh, would have an opportunity to work together uh, in order to create not only economic opportunity, but to to reduce the 
the level of misunderstanding, the level of suspicion, the level of hatred that existed between the two communities. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so easy for these things to continue. In 2001, some loyalist thugs terrorized a Catholic school and their um, parents at Holy Cross Church. On the thank, Ardoin. Ardoin. Thank, Ardoin. Thank you, folks, in Belfast. And showed how quickly a new generation can be exposed to this violence that both of you were working so hard to break the cycle of, of course. So, um, Jim, I was moved by the story of okay. Margaret McKinney. Because you told he's actually it my book. cousin. Oh, you're kidding. This is a small No, country. he's my cousin. I think I knew that, Brian. <laughs> yeah. It does have a bit of a resolution, if you will, but it also gives an example of how mistakes were made on both sides, certainly. It's not the point of this show to come out loyal to one side or the other, but rather maybe committed to peace in between but and nonviolence. But could you tell us that story and how you healed some of that wound, Jim? Well, um, Brian McKinney was a was a young lad, as you know, Brian, um, who we would probably describe as developmentally, developmentally disabled. Um, he came from a fine family uh, on the Springfield Road, a Catholic family. Uh, he was eventually able to find employment uh, as a janitor. Uh, some friends of his, so-called friends of his, as I understand the story, one night put him up to what they told him was a joke uh, to uh, take a toy pistol and rob essentially a local convenience store in the area, um, which he did, uh, came home and told his parents about it. They were mortified, of course, marched him back to the store. The family owning the store understood his circumstance, uh, was willing uh, not to press any charges and let things be as they were. Uh, but then uh, several members of the what apparently was the IRA showed up later that night uh, in masks and guns and took Brian away, and he was never seen again for almost 20 years. Uh, I met uh, his mother uh, in the White House in Washington. She was there for uh, some events surrounding St. Patrick's Day, and she uh, uh, showed us newspaper clippings from what had happened and uh, wanted to know if we could help uh, find her son. Uh, she knew he was dead, uh, but she would like to have had his remains returned so she could give him a burial and uh, grieve and understand uh, what had happened to him. So uh, the Clinton administration was pretty good about that, and we worked hard with uh, those who we thought might be able to help us uh, without any recrimination, we just wanted to give this poor woman and her family some peace. And after about a year and a half of uh, effort, uh, uh, the IRA was able to locate this young man's remains across the border in County Monahan and return, return them to his mother and his family for, uh, for burial. That's amazing, Jim. I didn't even know you were involved in that. I'm just fainting that out uh, just as we speak. Uh, but that's that's amazing. Brian was killed before I was born, um, and I was, I'm actually named after him. Uh, but my mother is listening. I'm sure she's probably in tears. <laughs> uh, yeah. But that, that's amazing, Jim. Well, Margaret, um, in her own book about these things, um, was very gracious to us and to me in particular. But um, 
this was just a mother's pain, and there was an ability, we thought, to help alleviate that pain. Uh, during that year, year and a half, while we worked with uh, uh, through Sinn Féin and others to try and find uh, Brian's remains, I'd, I'd make a habit whenever I was in Belfast to go up and see Mrs. McKinney and let her know she was not forgotten, uh, that we were not going to give this up. Uh, we were going to do our level best uh, to bring her as much peace as we could. After it was all over, she sent me a beautiful letter, which I still have, saying that she will always remember me and prays for me every day uh, when she prays the rosary. And uh, I wrote her back and said, thank you so very much. I need all the help with the Almighty that I can get. <laughs> we all do, that's for sure. Oh, my. Um, if that's ever wonderful. there was a, a country that had uh, cause for woe, and yet I find it remarkable everybody's got a quick quit, and they're easy to both provide and accept laughs. So, um, well, all the power to Margaret. In fairness, there was there was plenty of pain on both sides here yeah. uh, over over the years, and I'm sure Brian would 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 agree with that as as would Anthony. And and what we as Americans were able to bring, I think, was not a solution to the problem. It was never our solution, but what we could bring was, as Anthony did with these children over the years, is bring an opportunity to say. You need to have an understanding of the other side. This does not have to be a constant violence solution. And there is a way forward here for everybody. If only everybody will stop, take a deep breath, it's more than a deep breath, of course, and look to the future. And I think in terms of the peace process um, and the extent to which our administration, the Clinton administration, was involved, we were a major contributor to that, but not the only one. Tony Blair's government, the British government, Mo Molum, who was secretary uh, to Northern Ireland for years, the statesmen and women, men and women who made the peace agreement, John Hume, David Trimble, Martin McGuinness, uh, Sir Reg Empey, all those people took enormous risks here, uh, and not just with their political careers, but in many cases with their lives, to try and create a framework within which social and political stability uh, could survive. Yeah, and thank goodness all of those efforts have definitely um, paid off. There are um, still shootings, but um, in the last decade, according to the Police Service of Northern Ireland official statistics, the number of paramilitary-related incidences ebbed slightly, but they're still regular, with 68 shootings or bombings in 17 to 18 compared to 108 to 09. So there's a bit of a reality check. They haven't just disappeared altogether, but certainly your hard work and the work of many have made that better than it was. So um, while there's so much to cover, I want to touch back to a little bit of what led to the dairy riots last month that Lyra was covering when she was shot in the Cragen. Police were searching and confiscating guns in anticipation of trouble on the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, um, the very same area of the Nationalist majority where the Bloody Sunday actually took place and Lyra's killing took place. You know, it doesn't help that many of the police are still Protestants, I believe, and that you know, after 10 years of budget cuts in London, a third of dairy children live in poverty and as high as a half in the Cragen area, according to the latest labor statistics. So 
And I found graffiti dating to 2018 that reads IRA here to stay on the walls, the same wall that was built after the attempt of the siege of the Catholics in 1689. So, and then Catholics were pushed outside the city wall into the swamps known as the Bogside. A note, the pedestrian peace bridge I happened to see on my trip was built in 2001 that connects the two areas. So an interesting metaphor of connecting the areas, but when we'll hear a tune about Bloody Sunday in the bog side in a minute. So Jim, give us a bit of, of dairy history to help us understand the shooting two weeks ago by the new IRA. And just a note, the new IRA formed in 2012 with a car bombing of the dairy courthouse in January. And one member recently quoted in the New York Times said, a hard border would be brilliant. It brings back the idea that this country is, is partitioned. He thinks it's a good recruiting tool, which is um, chilling. And after some dairy mention of the uh, working class that feel kind of left behind of promises of economic development from the Good Friday Agreement, uh, many cited feeling isolated that dairy has a slower growth rate than any city in the UK, according to the PricewaterhouseCooper. So, um, Jim, set the tone for how we can put um, the incidents of two weeks ago in context. Well, that's a long, uh, I think, and complicated answer so, or explanation. So, so let me try and, and simplify it a bit. When... Northern Ireland was created in 1921. The idea was to fashion a province of the United Kingdom out of Ireland and its 32 counties, which would be primarily Protestant, which was a synonym for Unionist supporters of the United Kingdom. And in doing that, initially the idea was that the entire province of Ulster, which is nine counties, could be taken into the United Kingdom. But on further inspection, they realized that if they did that, that would include three counties that were largely Catholic uh, or Republican, I suppose, and therefore would defeat the purpose. So what happened was they took six of the nine counties of the traditional province of Ulster. So when people now use Northern Ireland and Ulster synonymously, that's not correct. Uh, Northern Ireland is six counties out of the 32 counties on the entire Ireland, uh, island, I should say. In drawing this sort of gerrymandered province, as they did, the British included Derry, which was predominantly Catholic, predominantly nationalist, uh, but was at the time, uh, and, and, and unfortunately is not the same now, uh, an economic center of its own. It has a deep water port uh, off the River Foyle, which gives access to the North Sea, uh, and it was a desirable inclusion. So from the beginning, Derry was sort of a square peg in a round hole in Northern Ireland. Now, having said that, uh, over the years, the people of Derry, Catholic and Protestant, Unionist and Loyalist, I think have done a, a very good job of understanding their differences and working for their common benefit. Things like the new, so-called new IRA or any of the other splinter groups on either side, 
uh, have done their level best and continue to do their level best to try and disrupt that. But my own sense of dairy, uh, where I've spent a fair amount of time over the years I, I was there, uh, is that that does not reflect the people of dairy. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's, thank you for that, because that does bring it into context and proportionality, uh, which I think is terribly important these days. If, if you come into Derry now, heading west from Belfast, uh, there are a couple ways to do it. But if you come across the main bridge and come into Derry, you will find a statue that shows two men standing with their fingers not quite touching and it's called Hands Across the Divide. And one is intended to be a nationalist or a Catholic, the other is intended to be a Protestant or a Unionist. And in my mind, in my experiences in Derry, and I know many people in Derry who are still good friends, that's, that captures the city and the city's spirit. They are trying to come together. They're not quite there yet, but they are certainly trying and have for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That's so um, That's so good. In the background, we're hearing, of course, YouTube that made famous the, um, the song Sunday Bloody Sunday, famous by John Lennon. And um, it tells of the 72 Bloody Sunday when the, um, the British fired into an unarmed crowd during a civil rights march in the Catholic bog side of Derry on the border, of course, between Ireland and, and quote, Northern Ireland. So um, we're, uh, it's halfway through the show. It's 6.33, and we're going to take a bit of a break. So, um, and then we'll come back, and I'd like um, Anthony to read a letter from a young Derry lawyer um, who participated in Project Children, the exchange and she um she's it's very long but she eloquently talks about the current temperature in Derry and brings a point of view from um, the other side of town because she's from a middle class uh, neighborhood and uh, she also brings the youth voice which I think is very interesting so we're going to ask Anthony to read that after a break I would say go grab a Guinness and uh, return for the second half of our show when we turn to the future and hear what did work to promote peace, because in that there's a richness to call into planning for the future. And um, in the meantime, we're going to hear um, The Town I Loved So Well by the Dubliners. It's their version of the Luke Kelly song from 1973. I'd like to do a song that was written by a friend of ours, Phil Coulter, and he comes from the city of Derry, which... Uh, has been a very troubled spot for the last 26 or 7 years and we'd love to do his marvellous song, The Town I Love So Well. In my memory I will Town that I have loved so well, where our schools played ball by the gas yard wall, and we laughed through the smoke and the smell. Going home in the rain. 
dark lane Past the jail and down behind the fountain Those were happy days In so many, many ways In the town I love so well the early morning the shirt factory horn called women from Craigan the moon and the ball while the men on the dole played a mother's role for the children and them walk the dog And when times got rough There was just about enough But they saw it through without complaining For deep inside was a burning pride the town I love so well But when I return How my eyes were burned To see how a town Could be brought to its knees By the armored cars and the bombed-out bars And the gas that hangs on to every breeze Now the army's installed My old gas yard wall And the damn barbed wire gets higher and higher And guns, oh my God, what have they done? Oh, I'm going to cut them off. What sacrilege? I do apologize. I'm sure I'll get angry messages from listeners because whoever cuts off a gorgeous song like that? But, um, Jim, I understand that you know uh, Phil Coulter uh, very well and that he made this song famous, of course, a boy made good from the poor Catholic area of, of Derry. Uh, very cool. And, you know, there were so many songs that um, helped promote peace. Uh, to break that 300-year cycle of, of divisiveness or divisiveness, if we're speaking in, in British. So, um, and I encourage people to check out Mary Black's song for Ireland, of course, a classic, and Wasted Life by Stiff Little Fingers as well. There's wonderful resources. Well, welcome back to Hemispheres. As we turn to the future of Northern Ireland, I hope your calls... Um, I welcome your calls uh, with questions or comments to 303-442-4242. We're speaking with Anthony Macy of Project Children that brings children from different backgrounds together in the United States, and James Lyons, Jim Lyons, um, who worked with the International Fund for Ireland until 2001. That's an independent international organization which 
uses seed money to promote collaborative economic development projects by and for both Catholics and Protestant in the neediest areas. So, all right, Anthony, well, a letter from a young lawyer in Derry. Thank you. Nikki, when you reached out to me to ask about my understanding of the shooting that took place recently, I reached out to a young lady that was one of the Project Children interns uh, not too long ago, a few years ago. She was a law student that came here to Colorado. And um, when she went back to get her law degree and began to work in uh, Belfast, I discovered that she happened to be uh, the attorney that worked on the rights for the film clips that became part of the BBC documentary about the story of Project Children, How to Defuse a Bomb. So I reached out to Neve, knowing that she today lives in Derry and asked her, what is the pulse of Derry from her perspective? And she sent me this amazing email yesterday. I'll read some of it to you today to give you a sense of where the the sense of the description of what Jim had said about Derry today. She said, I was friendly with Lyra McKee, so was completely shocked and furious to hear about her death. She's actually the first person I've ever known to be killed in a troubles-related incident, personally. There was such a huge outpouring of public feeling in the direct aftermath of her murder, but even now, two weeks later, it's starting to feel like that's fading a little. My fear is that it will become just another terrible thing that happened. I wouldn't say things are tense in Derry in a way that you'd notice at all in the city center. This week is the jazz festival, so there are thousands of visitors in town at the bars and restaurants, etc. My take is there are older people who are clinging on to some outdated notion of what it means to be a Republican young people who are being largely manipulated by these older people into going out with guns. Derry really has been left behind in a lot of ways, economically, and it's hard to see that that's because of anything other than it being a mainly Catholic nationalist place. And the people with most power in Northern Ireland have traditionally been decidedly not either of those things. For a lot of young people, and it seems like especially young men, They're dealing with unemployment, and they feel like they have no prospects. Drug problems and mental health issues are prevalent, and there really isn't sufficient support available. More people have died by suicide in Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement than died by sectarian violence in the whole of the Troubles. I was stunned with that fact, Nikki. I, I couldn't actually believe that she was accurate, so I did some research. And I actually saw the article that Lyra McKee wrote three years ago about suicides in Northern Ireland. I looked up other research papers, including a professor from um, Queen's University, documenting that more people had died by suicide than in the Troubles during that window. And I discovered that they are accurate, that 8,000 more young people have committed suicide in Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement, then they had died in the Troubles. And there was a term that I had never heard before called ceasefire babies that describes that the next generation that comes since the Good Friday Agreement experiencing the passed-on trauma of their parents growing up in the Troubles 
and they're struggling with how to come from that memory because there is still the economic disparity that has a lot of the influence of their frustrations. Yeah, I appreciated her email because it gives a great insight into how careful an evaluation needs to take place before one comes to conclusions in such a complex and um, tinderbox kind of um, town. So thank you so much for reading that. The conservative government in Britain has cut social services, such as youth programs, and there's fewer officers in neighborhood policing programs that promote a better understanding between the police and nationalists, according to Mark Hamilton, Assistant Constable Police Service in Northern Ireland. So, Anthony, you went the the NGO route, a nonprofit. Jim, you pulled together money from the U.S. and other countries where Irish had scattered knowing what helped to promote trust and understanding in the past, both of you, I'd like to hear from you about what worked. You know, Jim, you tell us that the IFI, the International Fund for Ireland, had many achievements in Northern Ireland, in the border counties. Companies that have stayed active and survived the cheap labor flight to Asia of larger companies, what were the elements that worked? You know, like how about the waterway across the island, for example? And then I'll get to you, Anthony. Jim, what did you learn from those experiences of businesses that are are continuing to make a significant contribution on the ground? In the Clinton administration, we had sort of a three-level approach, uh, which included inward investment in Northern Ireland and the border counties of the Republic of Ireland. So it was a total of 12 counties out of the 32 uh, the United States put in well over $200 million during that period of time, which was matched by the European Union primarily, and then uh, some contributions from Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. But what we learned, what I learned was the most successful projects that we did were projects in the neighborhoods and on the ground. They were small projects, what some might say were micro-projects, micro-lending that involved both communities. We would not put money into projects that didn't involve both communities. The phrase we used for that was cross-community. We found that there were, there were in both communities, uh, strong community leaders who'd been working uh, in their neighborhoods for years and years before we got there, who just needed a little bit of assistance and some opportunity to create common ground in order to improve their own neighborhoods. So it was it was truly a micro effort that I thought was most successful. Uh, the people I came to know uh, as friends and appreciate the work that they had done were people from those communities in the Shankill, the Falls, and East Belfast, North Belfast, Derry, uh, villages and towns in Northern Ireland, you probably have not heard of, where we afforded them that opportunity. We we created a platform that was what we called safe space, where they could come together and, and, and have an opportunity, frankly, with not a whole lot of money from us. We mostly advanced what we called seed capital, and they called pump priming, uh, for these projects to create economic opportunity, cottage industries in many cases. And I think... Uh, that was where we were the most successful. 
Interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you were ahead of your time on microloans. I imagine that was a hard sell in those days, <laughs> right Right in that setting, and so early. So that's... Well, it was. But once we made the sale, particularly to the banks in Northern Ireland, they were very supportive. Uh, uh, the chairman of the Ulster Bank, who's now deceased, unfortunately, Sir George Quigley, was, was a true visionary in that regard. Uh, and he was Anglo-Irish. Uh, but that didn't matter to him. What mattered was there, there was a way here uh, that economic opportunity could be brought to the grassroots level. And, and that, I think, uh, was the lasting contribution, at least, we were able to make on the economic front. Now, at the same time, of course, we had, you know, Senator George Mitchell and the political talks and all the rest of it. But, but one complemented the other, I think, pretty clearly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, Brian, um, briefly, what um, what moved you uh, positively from your experience with Project Children? My first time uh, coming to America was with Project Children, and that was also my first time ever meeting a Protestant. Uh, before that, uh, we hated each other, and for no other reason, just because they were Protestants. And, and they brought me out here to America and showed me a whole other world. Uh, and, and I went back home, obviously, and, and went through a lot of troubles. Uh, but if, if not for Project Children, um, I would not be back in America, and I would very likely not be alive today. Oh, that's that's remarkable. Did you find it difficult to make friends with the Protestant kids that you were working with at first? No, no, it was, it was natural. When, when we all met, and they were just normal people just like us, uh, uh, we all had a, a wonderful time together, but we went back home and started hating each other again. <laughs> but it, it, it did plant a seed that they are normal people, uh, but where, where we come from, it's not okay to have friends on the other side. No, I can't imagine. That, that would be breaking the rules. Anthony, mm-hmm. how did you see friendships between kids from different backgrounds improve? You must have seen some of the light bulbs going off as they're working together, and you're working your magic during these times in the States during the summer. One of the most touching experiences I had was a young man named Declan, who was maybe 11 years old when he came to Colorado. He was a very quiet kid. He wouldn't uh, really communicate much with his host's uh, mother. She shared a story with me that I shared when the news media came to my home to interview uh, the story about Project Children that um, one of the members of his family had spent 10 years in prison for shooting a Protestant. He came from a very divided neighborhood in Lurgan. And um, the news lady asked him this question, um, so understand that your father had said that you wouldn't get along with the Protestants what will you tell him? And he looked at her as if he was speaking to his father. He didn't blink, and he said, I'm going to tell him he was wrong. He went back and was later diagnosed that he had ADHD, but he had an interest in wanting to learn to play music. When he was in America, he was listening um, a lot to the music that his host mother would play, which was Jimi Hendrix, Santana. So he came back, and he wanted to learn the guitar, and his father got him a guitar for Christmas, and his first teacher was a Protestant guitar teacher. He ended up becoming uh, an amazing musician who today plays in Belfast, and he's one of the most gifted musicians I've ever seen or heard. 
to this day, he plays in a lot of the different bars and goes to London and plays and highlights the sense of his connection to the music through Project Children. Oh, isn't that wonderful? That's amazing. Oh, I have so many questions of the, of all of you on the lines. I'm going to skip through this and jump right to any chance the island will unite under one government. I mean, I understand 85% of the people in the North and the South who voted supported the, the division in, in 97, but might the prospects of Brexit change the game? Anthony first, maybe, and then, then Jim or Brian? Initially, I didn't um, see that... Ireland could absorb uh, the burden rate of uh, the Northern Ireland expense ratio because there's so much um, support that's needed to keep things functioning. I shared that story with the local bar owner, uh, Noel Cunningham, I believe his name is, of the Celtic Tavern down in Denver. Noel Hickey. Uh, Noel Hickey. Thank you, Jim. And um, he said that he believed differently that um, actually that he believed the European Union would be able to support the absorption of the uh, integration of uh, the North back to Ireland. Uh, I leave that out there for speculation, but uh, Jim, what do you think? You know, Anthony, um, I've thought a lot about this over the years. The time I was there uh, with the administration and since, uh, uh, for example, I'm going back uh, actually Friday. I'm going to be uh, in Belfast next Tuesday with George Mitchell for a conference on sectarianism that I think is as timely as it could be. Mm. I respect the traditions of both communities, and it's not just because (laughs) my mother was from Protestants and my father was from Catholics. Over my time there and dealing with the people I dealt with, it's just, you you just cannot respect, come to respect, um, the difference in their traditions. What what remains to be done, I think, here is, as John Hume uh, so eloquently put it once, that the, the people of Northern Ireland have to learn how to spill their sweat together, not their blood mm-hmm. together. And I hope, I, I am optimistic about the future for Ireland and Northern Ireland. Whether or not there's reunification, uh, the cultural differences may be too large and too deep-seated for there to be reunification, but the Good Friday Agreement, which is in a precarious position thanks to Brexit, still provides a framework for that, still provides an opportunity for these two cultures to ex- exist side by side in mutual respect. And I'm just not convinced in my own mind that there needs to be a reunification in order to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. And Brian? I believe um, in the next generation, uh, first they'll have to desegregate and start living together. Um, but I do believe within the next 30 years that there will be a United Ireland. Uh, I believe the there is a lot of division, no question about it. Um, but when the older generation uh, are gone, and the new generation coming up are, are not thinking about the past and all those feelings of hatred, I do think they'll, they'll die down and eventually Ireland will unite as, as one island. Interesting. Oh, Anthony? Interesting that you share that, Brian. The closure uh, from Neve Hargan on her email was last week we had the local council elections and across Northern Ireland the Alliance Party 
who don't designate as either nationalists or union, unionists, had the most successful result they've had in over 40 years. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll see what happens, definitely, because part of the Good Friday Agreement was a provision made for a referendum um, to reunite, should the polls indicate, um, you know, that is a 30-year-old um, uh, document. But earlier in 2017, the power-sharing arrangement that was laid out in that agreement fell apart, leaving no local government, really, to um, possibly rein in extremists if that's necessary. And um, next week, leaders in Stormont are, are getting together to see what can be done. Do you folks, any of you, any of you three, think that in light of this recent shooting, the renewed interest in finding political solutions in a working relationship will last long enough to get the job done? Who wants to take that one on in a second or less? I can. Um, I believe that it's going to take, uh, like uh, the lady had said, the reporter, they're going to have to invest in jobs that make people uh, feel confident about themselves and can provide a living for their family. Otherwise, you're still going to have lots of people recruiting them. And uh, like she had said in her email, I don't think you had read that part, Anthony, that she had said in her email, uh, people don't have any prospects. And the, the sound of Dan for Ireland uh, is attractive, which was attractive to all of us when we were growing up as children. Uh-huh. Right? And Jim? A yay, nay? Well, um, <laughs> I think that there's been a failure of leadership in Northern Ireland on both sides, from both communities. Uh, Stormont, the legislature, the local legislature, which was revitalized by the Good Friday Agreement, hasn't met now for, I think, close to 20 months. And the statesmen and stateswomen who crafted the Good Friday Agreement who were responsible for its initial implementation uh, are by and large gone. Uh, and this is a situation that cries out for leadership, just cries out for leadership from both communities. So I, I think unless and until that happens, and whether you know, Ms. McKee's death would be a catalyst for that, I don't know. But without there being some leadership that's responsive to their communities and the will of their constituents, uh, I'm just not sure there's going to be much progress made here in the short term. I just want to let people know that the ambassador of Ireland to the U.S., Daniel Mulhall, will um, take a shot at the Brexit questions. He'll come to Denver to speak on Ireland Brexit and the future of the EU. He's at Corbell at the DU campus on the 13th and 14th, and also on Monday the 13th at the Molly Brown House, 6 to 8 p.m., um, though the formal RSVP period is done, I'll post his remarks later on our blog, Hemisphere Show on KGNU.org. Thank you so much, gentlemen. I hate to um, to cut this short, but um, James, Honorary Consul General to Ireland, thank you for being on the phone. Um, thank his, you. His book is Meet Peace. Um, meet, peace, peace meets the streets on the ground in Northern Ireland 1993 to 1991 thank you to Anthony and Brian really appreciate it we go out with Give Ireland back to the Irish thank you very much <laughs>